if you're using a house Bible, it's page 973. Did you know that the original motto of Harvard University was for Christ and the church? Sort of hard to believe now. Part of its college laws back in 1642, yes, it is that old, uh, kind of a student handbook of sorts, had these instructions. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the Scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of the language and the logic, and in practical and spiritual truths as his tutor shall require, according to his ability, seeing the entrance of the word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple, Psalm 119, 130. That was the student handbook at Harvard University. Founded by Puritan, Calvinist, Congregationalists, Harvard and Yale were two of the first schools established in the colonies. Jonathan Edwards, you may know the name, was a graduate of Yale and, in fact, the third president of Princeton, which also was established in those early days, actually to train ministers for the Presbyterian Church. Well, today, of course, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton are the vanguard of radical liberal theology and politics and unbridled religious pluralism and relativism. But there were those who stood against the tide of unbelief as it washed over those institutions Harvard's seventh president, a man with an unusual name, Increase Mather, he boldly expressed his concerns in his day about the creeping theological liberalism of Unitarianism that was creeping into Harvard. When Princeton Seminary, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the seminary that was associated with the university, when it became increasingly dominated by Darwinism and by religious apostasy, one of the professors by the name of J. Gresham Machen led an unsuccessful attempt at reformation to try to get the institution to return to biblically orthodox uh, roots. In 1923, he wrote a book entitled Christianity and Liberalism, in which he argued that theological liberalism was not just another flavor of Christianity, but was, in fact, another religion altogether. Much like Paul, who spoke in this letter about, quote, another gospel, a different gospel, and then he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That has happened all of these years as a strategy of the enemy to lead people away from Christ alone and ultimately lead them to their own destruction, to take the gospel and to continue to couch teaching in terms of the Bible, but really to present another gospel that is not the true gospel. And men like Machen were called controversialists, fundamentalists. In reality, they were following the example of the Apostle Paul. They realized the absolutely essential nature of the gospel, that some things are, in fact, worth fighting for. Sadly, sometimes even people whose theology is orthodox actually get ensnared in compromise 
with apostasy. Fuller Theological Seminary was established in 1947 as a theologically conservative alternative to some of the mainline theologically liberal schools. However, much of Fuller's early leadership was uh, embarrassed by what they considered the strident separatism of the more fundamentalist branch of Christianity. And they made a concerted push to establish there a kind of, uh, a new kind of evangelicalism, one that was intellectually and academically respectable. They were intent on seeing Fuller gain the same kind of esteem that the Ivy League schools had. And it was, in fact, that sort of double-mindedness that sowed the seeds of the eventual theological downgrade of that institution, in fact, has led many of the professors to redefine and even outright deny the doctrine of biblical inerrancy, the inspiration, the authority, the inerrancy of the Bible. And while that school actually still clings to the idea of traditional marriage in 2013, it became the first evangelical seminary to allow the formation of an LGBTQ student group on campus. Friends, compromise matters when it's compromise about the gospel and about biblical essentials. In this letter, Paul recounts a situation of compromise that he had faced. And he tells about that to the Galatian churches as as a warning to them. And now it echoes down through the centuries to us as a warning that's just as important in our day as it was in the days of the original readers. Galatians chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 11. And when Cephas, that is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And when I saw saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. And that's the extent of our text, but let's continue to read in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now this account is uh, told as Paul looks back on it, and we don't know exactly when it happened. We don't have any other records in Scripture to help us sort of pinpoint the date. Um, Presumably it happened sometime after Peter was imprisoned, if you remember that account and the time of the Jerusalem assembly, that Jerusalem council that's recorded in Acts 15. We do know that it takes place, it took place up in the city of Antioch in Syria, and this was the third largest city at that time in the Roman Empire, some quarter of a million in population, 10% they estimate were Jews, 
And the issue that uh, came to the forefront that caused this conflict and this confrontation was a change in Peter's behavior. What Paul viewed as an act of hypocrisy, an act of compromise. There was a change in Peter's behavior. Before this, his habit had been to share meals with the Gentiles. Now, that suggests, I think, that he had not been strictly observing the Old Testament food laws because there would have been a number of problems in sitting down and breaking bread with Gentile people. One would have been that there was the possibility of having to eat foods that were in fact forbidden uh, for the Jews to eat. There were also the pro- there was also the problem of the fact that even if it were, they were the right foods, that they may have been prepared in the wrong way. You remember that the law of God prescribed the manner of preparation for a number of these kinds of foods and the way they must be served. And then, of course, there was the possibility that the meat offered at the table had been meat that had been previously given up as a sacrifice to a god who could not consume it, and so was sold in the marketplace and bought by the Gentile person. So, some of you, I know, have special dietary needs, or you have a loved one that has special dietary needs, and you know how limiting that can be in a way, and how you have to think very carefully about where you're going to go eat and what you're going to have and bringing what you need with you and that sort of thing. Imagine now, if you will, all of the details that God gave in the Old Testament law about what to eat and how it should be prepared and how you would go about that and all of that. Um, and, and a Jew trying to keep those laws uh, the, you can see, I think, very quickly that these laws were designed to isolate those people, to separate the people of God from their heathen neighbors. But Peter is fellowshipping with the Gentiles, sitting down and breaking bread with them on a regular basis. This, I say, was his habit before the account that Paul records. Now, I ask you, what was Peter's warrant for ignoring those food laws? They were, after all, the commands of the God of the universe. Well, I think the answer lies largely in Acts chapter 10. There, God himself signaled to Peter a change. Here's what we find there. In Acts chapter 10, verse 9, the Bible says that as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop. This is in Joppa by the sea. He went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. God signaled to Peter a change with regard to those food laws. And he had to do it three times. And I think we would all sympathize with that. 
because this is something that God had commanded that His people had observed for generation after generation. And of course, the deeper reality that God is trying to communicate here is that He is cleansing the Gentiles, right? He is bringing them into God's people. And in a few uh, hours, Peter will be sent, in fact, to a Gentile soldier by the name of Cornelius to preach to him the gospel. And the Bible says that he said this, the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. So all of those distinctions that were created by those food laws, among other things, in the Old Testament, he's Peter indicates that God is doing away with that distinction between Jew and Gentile. The wall that divided them is being torn down. They're being brought together into one people. And in fact, Peter noted that the Holy Spirit of God was poured out upon Cornelius and upon the Gentiles just as it was upon the Jews. But it is unlikely that Peter would have even come under Cornelius' roof to stay with him for several days, as it's recorded, and break bread with him and have these opportunities with them had he not been given by God this vision regarding what he was allowed to eat. And of course, the roots of all of this, I think, even go back to Jesus himself and a shift that Christ himself implied as he looked forward to the establishment of the new covenant through the shedding of his blood. Mark chapter 7 and verse 18, Jesus said, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside, that is what he eats, it cannot defile him, since it enters into his not into his heart, but into his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark makes this comment, thus he declared all foods clean. I'm sure this is not something that they grasped immediately. This is a, a, a comment, an editorial comment made later, looking back after all that God had done. But it was on the basis of these things that Peter became convinced. From the Lord's own words, from the vision that God gave him in Joppa, and from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles, Peter became convinced that the distinctions between Jew and Gentile were being done away with. And of course, that had implications for circumcision, for food laws, for holy days, and for, in fact, the entirety of the temple worship. The days were coming, and were even now, when it would not be on this mountain or on that mountain that God's people would worship Him, but they would worship Him everywhere, in spirit and in truth. This is Peter's conviction until, Paul recounts, um, as he says, certain men came from James up to Antioch, and doubtless these People were shocked that Peter, one of the pillars of the church, was eating with the Gentiles. Now, there is no evidence, I think, to believe that these people were really representing James's view. In fact, James makes his view clear in Acts chapter 15, and Peter, in fact, agrees but I think you could think of these guys, at least I think of them like spiritual groupies, hangers-on to James and the other pillars in Jerusalem, disciples, if you will, who are more zealous and less wise than their leader, as is, in fact, often the case. And these men in turn, we're probably feeling pressure from what is called in verse 12, the circumcision party, or those of the circumcision. These are the men who declared, as it's recorded in Acts chapter 15, that you must be circumcised in order to be saved. 
Circumcision is a necessity in order to be justified before God. And of course, friends, the truth of the gospel, and this has been being made clear the last few weeks, the truth of the gospel is that we are justified before God solely on the basis of Jesus Christ. On the basis of Christ alone. That Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our justification and our redemption, our sanctification and our wisdom before God. Christ and Christ alone. Salvation comes to a guilty sinner who cries out to God in the depths of his sin. The awareness of the judgment of God that is upon him and he cries out that God would be merciful to him for the sake of Christ. He prays that God would be gracious to him for the sake of Christ who died on the cross in the place of sinners, who lived a perfect life on behalf of his people, and praying that God would unite him to Christ so that in Christ he would have everything that belongs to Christ. Forgiveness and the inheritance that is to come and all of the righteousness that he needs before the Almighty God. This was Peter's conviction about the gospel. And it was Paul's conviction as well. But now, that conviction was being put to the test. And from this account, we can learn six important lessons about temptation and about sin. Number one is this, that none of us is beyond temptation. None of us is beyond temptation. Even somebody as bold as Peter could be tempted in such a severe way and fall. Our dear brother Peter, and I do mean that. He is our brother. We will fellowship with him one day. He was, in fact, kept by the grace of God, but even such a good brother could fall into this great temptation. As James says, we all stumble in many ways. And this realization that we all are tempted and from time to time fall into sin, I don't know, has has God made you realize that? Has God brought your weakness to your own attention lately? You know, there is something even in that that God is doing. Do you know that? Even in manifesting to you your own weakness and your own sinfulness, God is at work. He is such a gracious God. That realization should have several effects in our life. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 Confession, the Baptist Confession that followed it, said... These words, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. You know that God does that from time to time? He takes his sanctifying hand, as it were, Loose a moment to let us see the evil, the corruption of our hearts apart from grace. Why does he do so? Well, the writers of the confession said he does so for his good and beautiful reasons. One, to discover or to expose to them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they might be humbled. And secondly, to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon Himself. And finally, to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. The discovery of sin, friends, I've found it it, it does exactly these things. Have you not found this? That it humbles us to realize 
apart from the grace of God, what we would be. And I think sometimes we live in the the buoyancy of the grace of God for a period of time, and we begin to get our eyes, as it were, off of the Lord and onto our good deeds that flow from His grace and begin to think that we are, in fact, pretty inherently righteous ourselves until the Lord pulls Himself away and we fall and we're humbled and we're brought low We say, Lord, this is who I really am. And then in that moment, and then in that moment, He calls us again to lift up our eyes and look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, whom He has given as a sacrifice for our sins on our behalf, And we cast ourselves again upon Him for forgiveness. We run to Jesus Christ again for our righteousness. And we call out independence again for God to give us an outpouring of the Spirit of power, the resurrection power that we may know that power over our sin, over the practice of sin in our lives. It drives us to that. God is wise and good even in this. And then all of this causes us to be watchful, to be vigilant, not wanting anything to come between ourselves and God again. Making a more earnest use of the means of grace that He has provided. The Word and prayer in His church. This is why God allows His people to be tempted. There is none of us who is above temptation. And the truth is, you can't live on yesterday's grace. We need the Lord every single day of our lives. He allows us to be tempted. He sometimes allows us to fall. None of us is beyond temptation. And secondly, none of us is above the Word. None of us is above the Word. Even in this passage, who's who's getting rebuked? Even an apostle is not beyond the Word. Even an apostle is not above rebuke. Now, when an apostle or a New Testament prophet was writing under divine inspiration. Their writings were infallible. But the apostle himself, as a man, was not a perfect person. God doesn't save people, anybody, because he's a perfect person. God saves everyone for the sake of Christ. And so, even this man, the great apostle whom we will all stand in awe of could be tempted, could fall, and was to be held to account regarding the Word of God and the Gospel. Now, we tend to want to make excuses for the sins of prominent Christians. This is because we tend to look to people as somehow ultimate, even while we appreciate them, we tend to make more of them than what we should. In fact, some of the early church fathers actually taught that in this passage, Peter wasn't really sinning. He was play-acting and so that Paul would rebuke him so that they could give an example to the church of what you shouldn't do. In fact, another early church father said that this Cephas must not actually be Peter at all. We, we do tend to sort of elevate people as if they're somehow beyond rebuke, beyond the need for accountability to the Word. In fact, friends, in the end, a pastor or a theologian or even an apostle is not above the Word. We must let the Word take precedence in every dispute we have. Not our favorite Christian personality. We must examine everything that we hear. Examine it 
in light of the Word of God and hold fast to what is good and flee from every form of falseness. And I want you to remember that here. I know that you, my church family, I know that you show proper respect for my calling as a pastor here. And rightly so. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. But the real authority is clear. Just ten verses later in that same chapter, the writer of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God. Right? That is the authority. That's the basis of the authority that a church leader holds. In the end, this church will only be healthy if even pastors are held accountable to the Word of God. If the ministry here were to deny the Gospel, were to undermine publicly, unrepentantly, some fundamental doctrine of the Word of God, I hope that you would raise the alarm. That you would raise the alarm with other pastors, with other leaders. Call a congregational meeting. Set the record straight. Because public compromise justifies public censure. That's what you had going on here, right? Paul called Peter into account. He withstood him face to face. He publicly, before them all, he says, critiqued him for what was in fact a compromise of the gospel of justification by faith alone. And of course, none of this is to be done lightly. You know that. None of this is to be done hastily. Paul later tells Timothy, in chapter 5, verse 19 of his first letter to Timothy, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Alright, it's easy, of course, for, you know, one, one person or a couple of families in the church to get their feathers ruffled. It's easy to make a secondary issue as if it's something foundational. It's easy to ascribe motives and make unjustified assumptions, of course. So the Bible is very careful to say this is not something to be done lightly or flippantly, but here's what Paul goes on to tell Timothy. But for those elders that persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Friends, here's the bottom line. None of us is above the Word. The Word of Christ is the final arbiter for everything that we do as a church. And it's going to take you being committed to that and the leadership committed to that to make this a healthy place. Number three, I think we learn from this account that we are called on to reprove and to restore one another. We are called on to do that, to reprove and to restore one another. And what a blessing that Paul actually had the courage to confront Peter. Do you think Peter thought of it as a blessing? I don't know that in the moment he thought of it as a blessing, but I know this, that looking back he did. I know that looking back, Peter thanked the Lord for the admonition that came from his brother Paul. Because by the time you get to the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Peter are by this time speaking with the same voice. In fact, Peter later wrote of, quote, our beloved brother Paul, who, quote, wrote to you according to the wisdom that was given to him. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 15. 
So it is one of those things where, you know, when we confront someone about sin, it may be that the initial reaction is one of wounded pride and self-justification. Who hasn't been there? But that in the end, if this is truly God's child, He will humble Himself, will receive what was good from that, and will give thanks to God that God has graciously chastened him, kept him, restored him to a right way of thinking and living. Brothers, what a blessing it is when God's people carefully and humbly and graciously exhort each other and hold one another accountable and seek for the restoration of erring brothers and sisters. Paul's going to say it later in this chapter. In chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he says, Brothers, you who are, excuse me, brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear with one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You, you can see from that text that Paul had in mind that this was not just something that he was called to do as an apostle to confront sin and wrongdoing, but he says, says to the brethren, to the brothers, that this is something for you to do. And brothers, brothers in Christ here, I encourage you to speak truth, God's truth to one another. Speak it with gentleness, speak it with humility, but speak it with earnestness and boldness. We need this from one another. Peter needed it. You and I need this. Teens, teenagers, hear me. This word is for you. This word is for you as you go about your time with your friends. You see a young brother or sister who is going in a way that is not pleasing to the Lord. Oh, I pray that God would actually give you the courage and the love of that person more than love for yourself and what they think of you to speak a word of gentle rebuke. I still remember as a young man um, visiting uh, my uncle at his church. And there was a young man in that congregation who was probably 16 or 17 years old who spoke truth to me when I was acting foolishly as a 14-year-old boy. You know, looking back, I thank God for that. Sisters, this is true for you. Speak truth to one another. The word brothers here is big enough to encompass you too. Brethren and sistren. Cistern? No, that's something else. Whoever you are, speak truth. Speak the word to one another. Of course, I do get nervous when someone thinks that it's their primary gift or calling to be the church's rebuker. And I have run across those people from time to time. There is a a sense of pride sometimes that's behind that. Of course, the Scripture tells us to keep watching ourselves lest we too be tempted. But I hope that we would all love one another enough to speak, to speak truth, to speak a word of gentle correction and rebuke. Another lesson from this account is from the testimony that Paul gave that Peter's sin was not his sin alone. In fact, in verse 13, if you'll take note of it again, look what it says. The rest of the Jews, that is, I'm assuming the, the Jewish Christians, The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter. So that even Barnabas, even Paul's partner in ministry, 
ministry to the Gentiles largely, even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. The fourth thing I think that we ought to take away from this is that our sin always impacts other people, right? Our sins always impact others. None of us lives a solitary life. Every one of us is affected by other people. And our lives and the way that we behave and the things that we proclaim, they affect other people for good and for bad. The things that we do, the things that we say, parents, they have an effect on our kids. They do. For good or for bad. And God forbid... God forbid that our children fall into sin because they are following in our footsteps. Better a millstone hung around our necks and cast into the sea. Teens, your younger siblings, your friends, they will be affected by what you do, by what you say. I want you to just feel the weight of that for a minute. You know, when you're young, it's like, I don't want any weights on me. But it's a good thing to feel the, the, the power of that influence for good, but also the weight of that influence for ill. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that no one is emboldened in sin by watching you. That no one has, by observing your life, a ready-made excuse for his own disobedience. May it never be. May no one be able to look at our lives and see blatant, open, unrepentant hypocrisy. Maybe it's true that no one ever actually sees our sin. Maybe it's the kind of sin that is not very visible to other people. But I tell you, even such sins that are coddled have an invisible, mysterious kind of impact on those around us. They influence and impact your ability to speak the truth earnestly into the lives of other people. Haven't you felt that? And of course, the truth is, sometimes we're held back from speaking when we should because we know we're not consistent. And there's that problem as well. And I'm talking about the times when and we are going on in, in sin and backsliddenness. And it robs us of that kind of boldness that only comes with a clean conscience before God. Haven't you known that? There is a kind of boldness in that, right? But where our hypocrisy is visible to other people, it has led many to reject the truth that they've heard. Who of us doesn't know someone who justifies his own unbelief by pointing to the hypocrisy of some other alleged believer? May God keep us from such sins that impact others. May God give us the grace of repentance today. Amen? Unless we think that our sin isn't very bad, I think we should note from this text that we can compromise the gospel even without overtly denying it. We can compromise the gospel even without overtly denying it. Because what Peter, what Paul is criticizing here, is not the false teachers. He's already done that. And he's going to do that again. 
But who is Paul focused on right now? He's focused on a true believer. Not just false teachers perverting the gospel, but now, in this case, a true believer compromising the gospel. And in verse 14, in verse 14, if you look at the text again, he says that their conduct, that is of Peter and those who were following him, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Their theology was orthodox. Peter had not changed his basic theology. The problem was that his withdrawal was not motivated by theology. It was motivated by hypocrisy. He was acting in a way that was actually out of line in that moment with what he actually believed. There was something else motivating him besides theological considerations, right? Does that make sense? He's, he, he's not denying the gospel, but he is by his actions, by his hypocrisy, compromising the gospel. Which means that it's possible then to be orthodox in theology, but to undermine the gospel in how we act and how we respond. This is why Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. There's the gospel, and there's a manner of life that is associated with it and flows from it and is is in accord with the gospel. Paul says, make sure they match up. He told Titus in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, to teach people that they should, quote, adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, by the way that they live. We should ask ourselves, does my behavior today... This week, does my behavior comport with the gospel? Or does my behavior tell others that God's word is not really true after all? It's just a Sunday show for me. And if we look a little bit deeper, we can actually see finally what motivated Peter's hypocrisy. He says, Paul writes that before certain people came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Do you see what the text says? He drew back and he separated themselves, what? Fearing the circumcision party. The fear of man is often the trap that ensnares us in hypocritical compromise. So what we learn from this, that the fear of man is often the trap that ensnares us in hypocritical compromise of the gospel. As ever, the proverb is true. The fear of man brings a a snare. Sometimes the fear of man tempts us to act in ways that are out of line with what we believe. This is why he calls it hypocrisy here. Peter didn't change his theology, but he compromised his behavior. And that compromise was prompted by fear. Now, Paul didn't go a lot into it. Perhaps it was the fact that Peter was fearful of disapproval of the loss of stature among the influential Jerusalem crowd. Or perhaps it was actually fear of reprisal from Jewish zealot types. But I wonder how many times the fear of man is really at the root of our own hypocritical compromise. We are living out of the necessity of the good opinion of others and the fear of losing that good opinion. And that leads us to compromise what we know to be true. Living in a way that's fearful of so what someone will think or what someone will do. And so we act in ways that contradict what we believe. Young per- this is true of the young person who f- 
thinks more about what other peers think of him. That's what's in the forefront of his mind. That's what's on her heart as she chooses how she's going to act in their, in their circles. Rather than thinking more about what it means to be faithful to the Lord who bought them. This is what happens when a man or woman has a fearfulness of man that causes him to keep his mouth shut when he knows he should have spoken. When he knows it was the time to speak and he he stayed silent because of the fear of man. Will our desire for respectability, acceptance, and ease cause us to compromise the truth. Friends, I know in some cases it already has. And if that's the case, this is a day of repentance for us. It's a day to call upon the Lord for courage, for renewal, for conviction of what is really true at a deeper level than we've ever known before, so that when the time comes and we're tempted to pull back from that and to compromise the truth, we find it unthinkable. I want to ask what areas of our lives are we subtly compromising our convictions? You should ask that of your life. I should ask it of mine. In this moment, as we end this service together, what areas of our lives are we subtly tempted to compromise our convictions? In what areas are is our hypocritical behavior undermining the gospel that we proclaim. There's only one gospel that saves. Amen? We must be committed to it. Dedicated to it. Convinced that the gospel is essential to be uncompromising about the gospel and to have the courage to live our lives in keeping with the gospel, the kind of courage that comes from a deep conviction about the truth of the gospel. May today be a day of repentance, of fresh commitment to the truth, and of lives that reflect that kind of commitment. Would you bow in prayer with me? Father, we lay ourselves before You because You know our minds and hearts already. You have seen every action done in public and in private. And You've heard every word that has come out of our mouth. And You have known every thought in our mind that never came out. And so we are rightly humbled before You. We see in Peter's compromises a reflection of our own compromise. And we today confess it as a great sin and evil. Pray for Your forgiveness. Pray for courage and grace and strength and conviction. Please, Lord, continue this good work in us. Restore us today, I pray, that You draw people back to Yourself in this moment as they pray. In Jesus' name.